Brewery DB and Good Beer Matters have partnered to share the stories of craft and culture found in every glass. Brewery DB is the largest curated source of brewery knowledge and serves to connect craft beer lovers like yourself to your next brewery experience. Expand your knowledge on thousands of brews and create personalized brewery routes in your own neighborhood and nationwide. Join the waitlist on brewerydb.com today and be the first to know when new features go live. Check out the newest beta version of BreweryDB and get a taste for what's to come. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. Like, really figure out, like, why are you doing this? And who are you? Part of it is the culture itself is about connection. We can have the servers trained to really walk people through it. Because it's art. It's culture. It's delicious. It, it makes us happy. As small craft breweries continue to open around the world, our conversations about standing out tend to drift toward creating unique experiences. But what exactly does that mean? My next guest taught us all about tasting beer, but in this episode, he taps into his role of beer artist and educator to teach us how to create better beer experiences. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe, and one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 92 of Good Beer Matters with artist, author, and educator, Randy Mosher. I finally get to talk to uh, one who has inevitably become a beer mentor. Uh, Years ago, I bought a book and read that book cover to cover. I dog-eared it. I added tabs. I highlighted. I annotated. I underlined. and that was really the book that uh, that formally brought me into the beer world. And that beer, that book, of course, was uh, Tasting Beer by Randy Mosher. Uh, and today, we get to talk to Randy about that book and many other things. Randy, thank you so much for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. It's uh, it's great to talk to you. Um, uh, you know, I. I when I give that intro, I'm, I'm being very uh, literal about that. I, I had the occasion um, in 2015 to go to Spain for uh, two weeks with my wife and family, and and uh, and I, I brought that book with me, and I read that entire book uh, while we were on the road and traveling, and it was really perfect because um, while in Spain, we got to explore food and beer, and I had you know, easy access to, um, all the European beers that weren't skunked and oxidized and, and just, you know, (laughs) pale versions of, uh, what, of what they really are that we usually get in the U S. Sure. Yeah. And so that really was kind of, um, a, a veritable awakening. And, uh, in your book was the, uh, the cornerstone of all of that. So first of all, I just have to say, thank you. That, 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 uh, has been a tremendous influence on my uh, trajectory. Well, thanks for saying so. It's always nice to know that you're uh, kind of getting inside of people's heads. That's what's really fun about writing. 
is that you can you can ch- help people change the way they think in various ways. Yeah, well, uh, um, but that's not the only book you've written. Um, you've written a, a number of books. Um, uh, you know, more more than we really need a list. And of course, you, we can go to uh, is it uh, randymosher.com, right? And we can yep. look at all the mm-hmm. books that you have. But you're yep. a prolific author. You're a prolific. Um, uh, educator, uh, and you're a prolific graphic designer. Uh, what, what am I missing? Uh, that pretty much covers it. That, 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 that covers <laughs> well, all I'm the... a, actually, I'm a, I'm a brewery owner too. I'm a part partner in two breweries here in Chicago area. And what are those breweries? Uh, five rabbit cerveceria and, uh, forbidden root. And, uh, uh, we, five rabbit is a Latin themed brewery my partners are from costa rica and mexico and peru and the botanical um sorry forbidden root does what we call botanical brewing um, which is just a different way of saying we try and use all kinds of different ingredients in not just hops and malt and uh we've got we're just getting ready to open our third brew pub uh, here in Chicago uh, shortly. We have one in Columbus, Ohio also. So. You, you know, doing my research, I started seeing kind of like a uh, a common thread that there that you seem to have some sort of connection to um, Latin food, Latin culture. Is there a connection there or is it just a coincidence of, of, of you know, the circumstances of your life? Well, yeah, more more of that, I think. I've, sort of a chicken and egg thing, but once you kind of get on a path, things go, they tend to snowball. So, I, you know, being a graphic designer has brought me into contact with a lot of different people over the years. Um, and notably, uh, a guy named Marcelo uh, da Rocha, who was the founder of uh, Cervejaria Colorado in um, Brazil, and he brought me down to Mexico a few times, and or I'm sorry, to Brazil a few times. And uh, so I got to know Brazil a little bit and get to know a lot of the people, and I keep getting invited back there. And then I got involved with people in Mexico and Argentina. And so, and, and I think having this Latin um, concept brewery was, was intri- intriguing to them and, for, you know, bolstered my credentials. And, of course, I love all kinds of Latin food and culture and cuisine and everything. And uh, so it's been kind of a thrill to help people to come down and judge beer and to be one of the voices from outside, kind of helping them find their own voice and, and expressing their own culture through beer. Well, before we really dive into the the topics I wanted to approach with you, uh, I I, kind of want to dive into this a little bit more because I grew up in Southern California. I spent 20 years in the Northwest and now, uh, again, uh, live in Southern Arizona. So I'm Mm -hmm. I'm no stranger to to Mexican food, but I love, I mean, I think Mexican food, Peruvian food, um, Spanish food, uh, Belizean food is some of the best and most interesting in the world, despite its humble nature but and brazilian the, too and, and, because it's it's such a huge country you know you have multiple different regions and really multiple like the u.s multiple very different uh, cuisines so that's been fun to uh, explore and we don't see much of that outside the steakhouse thing uh, which is very far southern brazil mm. really uh, so we don't really see the seafood and the tropical and the caribbean and all those sort of different uh, threads that that are in uh, Brazilian 
uh, cooking. Well, and I, I haven't explored Brazilian specifically yet, but I, I do have to throw Argentinian steak to that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that I mean, it's just it's just mind-blowingly good. But the thing that I can't understand, hopefully you can uh, help me understand, is why we in America, when we go get a burrito or tacos or something like that, why we want to drink a domestic or just a um, a plain lager when, when they're craft beers that are far better suited to that culinary experience. Well, that's that sort of is the question that led led my partner to the founding of of Five Rabbit. That he was he was working for a brewery in I think in Panama, and they were having a overnight work session, and they had a little tasting of of domestic beers, including the one that they were working on. And the brand manager not only couldn't pick out his own beer, but liked the competitors' beer better, <laughs> and it got him thinking. You know. Like everything in Latin culture is vibrant and lively and fun and exciting and a little over the top sometimes. And the beer is just flat out boring. Absolutely. And, and it seemed like a jarring disconnect. So, you know, I think it's just habit. And and also, you know, just the mechanics of business. Those breweries started out big and just got bigger and ate each other. And so you have... Like Argentina, the InBev um, brand Quilmes has like mm-hmm. 93% of the market down there or something like that. Yeah. Uh, in Brazil, saying InBev has, you know, probably, I don't know exactly the number, but it's probably 80% of the market or better. And, and you know, so the craft breweries really struggle with distribution and unfair taxation schemes and all kinds of things. And, and the amazing things, the thing is, is that despite the incredible barriers, they're going for it, you know, and they're just doing brilliantly creative beers, um, really following their cultural true north, you know, or true south, I guess I should say. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, to try and, and, and despite the fact that the, that the big guys are either buying them, buying, you know, buying some of the bigger brands and, and have their own distribution systems and have ears of the government um, on their side and and all kinds of stuff, but they're still they're still going for it, uh, which is pretty awesome. So another reason to really want to help them out because they just are determined to do it. Oh, and yeah, and and I, I I can't explain why I've always felt a connection to the the Latin culture. It, it there's there's no rational reason for it other than just kind of growing up in a southern area and and uh, Spanish is kind of like a, a language that's also spoken around you. And um, but if we were, I, to... I, I, th- I think it, I think the, uh, part of it is the culture itself is about connection. You know, when you go to those places and you hang out with people they they're really connected to each other in in ways that we in north america aren't as much you oh. know they just love to get together they love to party they love you know i mean th- those societies certainly have their their pr- problems uh in terms of um you know governance and lots of other things but they still there's a sense there's a, just a spirit of let's get together and hang out yeah there, I, yeah. I agree. There are a lot of cultural assets that are overlooked by our American society, and uh, and mm-hmm. that's probably the the nicest way I can put that. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, if we were to stop this uh, podcast episode right here, then the take-home message has to—one of the take-home messages has to be when you eat— um, Mexican food or any type of uh, Latin-based food, then please, please, please try it with a really good craft beer. Try pairing and matching those intensities because this... I'm a firm believer that all of that food is just really... um, It's very individual. Um, 
as very as well as regional, but it's just very rooted in just like um, home cooking and connection and everything. And and so when you get this craft food paired with it, then it just gets even better. So skip that you know that basic Mexican lager that that you're that you're used to. Find something more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that's actually, God, you know, that was the perfect little mini conversation to kind of lead into this because one of the things I wanted to pick your brain about, and, and later on, I do want to get into, um, kind of like applying your experience with, um, with, uh, art and with education to all this, but what really, what really kind of, uh, kicks this thing off is, um, you know, these days we talk about, um, you know, it used to be that if you had good beer, then you stood out amongst the rest. But with nearly 9,000 breweries in the country, having good beer is no longer a a unique factor. Having good beer, good food is no longer unique. So people these days are really talking about how to create an experience, how to create a great customer experience. But the question I have, and hopefully you can help answer, is what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that you can't be everything to everybody, <clears throat> right? So it used to be, you know, in terms of brand, because I spent a lot of time in advertising agencies and design studios. And so, you know, I tend to think sometimes in branding terms a little bit um, when it's necessary. But I think, you you know, a, a position, a market position in, in the early days of craft beer was you'd pick a local creek and a critter and put some hops and banners and stuff on the label and then uh, you know you basically you open shop and we have craft beer that was hmm. your positioning we mm -hmm. have beer that's not mainstream right and so and there are still places where that's perfectly acceptable like if you're the first brewery in a little town in i don't know pick a state um that that has not had craft beer yet then you can open and you can have a pale ale and a amber and a brown and a porter and maybe a stout occasionally and all know, the usual all suspects the usual suspects because that was such a like in its day such a revolution from what it, what was on offer which you know was bland beyond imagining <clears throat> and so so but now you know you got to pick and choose you can be um you know you can be experiential and really push beers that are different and unique or or you offer a a particular unique environment uh you know food's important if if you if you're serving food it better be good and you know i'm in chicago and we've got 300 breweries in the metro area or maybe more now um and the quality of food is very high in this region and so you know we've we found we like uh, you know, we just hired a new chef for the new place and we got a guy that was like maybe on paper a little overqualified, but he's, um, you know, we're hoping he's just hoping he's just going to rock it because his, he, his little test, little test dishes were just amazing. So, you know, so, so, so once you have picked a theme, you just got to really roll with it, you know, and do everything you can, uh, whether it's the tap room or the, or the brew pub environment, of course, now social media, you have this opportunity to create these conversations with people uh, that are not just one way. You know, old old marketing used to be one-way marketing, but marketing now is two-way marketing. And some, some breweries even are really highly two-way, even almost to the point where they're getting more input from their audiences than they are from, from 
what what their own feelings are you know there there are there are like subscription breweries and and like um you know uh what do they call them uh you know those agricultural um things where you sign up for a basket of food every month the csas yeah the csas are some like some csb kind of ideas uh so those are pretty intriguing so and then you know there's breweries that are just kind of like emphasizing do-gooding and whether it's environmental or organic or um, gluten-free, God help us, or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So there's, you know, and then there's people that are just like, I'm just going to go with what's the real super leading edge styles, you know, so they're doing the sour fruiteds and the pastry stouts and the uh, hazy IPAs. And we do, you know, a fair share of the, of the, um, the first and last of those, we haven't really got a huge uh, stout program going, but we're, we're working on some stuff. Um, so, so it really is like pick your pick your theme and try and stick with it as much as you can. You got to obviously listen to the market because they're paying your bills. So where does uh, you know? It sounds like we're kind of talking about a few things that I I I'd like to summarize this as either purpose or mission or even a story. Where where do those fall into place as far as carving out your unique your your uniqueness so that you can create a very specific experience? Well, those are all a little bit. Those are all related. You know, the reason that gets at the who the people are and why they're doing this. Why did they quit their day job? you know, and, and dump a bunch of money into opening a brewery. Like, what do you expect to get out of it? Not just financially, but like, why is, cause the business, a beer is kind of a tough business. You know, my partner in, in, in Forbidden Root is a former venture guy that got into his fifties and he, you know, basically sold off all his venture stuff cause it was boring <laughs> and it was not getting any, you know, it wasn't a thrill anymore. He had this ongoing thing and, you know, just making money wasn't really, all that amusing, you know, nice as it is. So he just wanted to do something um, more, more personal. And he, he looked, you know, he said, yeah, it's the venture group. We looked at brewing and we just got off of that right away because it's hard to scale and it's regulated and it's um, c- very competitive and you're dealing with distributors and that could be problematic. And so that's like, from a business point of view, it's tough. So why are you doing this business? that's difficult you know, because somehow you feel like you have to do it. You want to do it. So what is that reason? You know, I always, when I was doing a lot of branding and stuff for people, I always, that's the hard conversation. It's like, well, what are you doing this for? Why, what's interesting to you about this? You know, what, why do you feel like you're upsetting your life and doing this? Because if, if you're in for a quick buck, you can get out right now because it's not going to happen. You know, there, certainly people have had some great success, but there's a lot of people out there you know, just having little businesses and growing as much as they can, which is usually not that fast and not that much. So, uh, because that's, that's a, you know, takes a lot of money and resources and, and it's not even with those, it's not that easy. So, so, so then you get, then, then like from that, you can, you can develop a mission. Okay. Here's why we're doing it now. How do we translate that into what's, what are we really doing it? And then the story is just sort of how you put that all together. And that's a little more out, like missions, a little more inward facing and story is obviously much more outward facing. And then it's that story based on the mission, based on the purpose, like why are, you know, now you can really like spin it out and 
and develop it creatively and put it in the flesh. And um, I'm sorry, I just had a question in my mind and now it's gone. But um, uh, so how are you how are you applying some of these concepts to the the brews that you're uh, you're dealing with? I mean, Forbidden Root and is it Five Rabbits? Is that what you said? Five Rabbits. Yeah, yeah. Five Rabbits. It's the name of a. It's the name of a, the god of. Uh, oh, I could say. I guess you could say one of the gods of sort of uh, intoxication in the <laughs> Aztec culture. Um, well, in it, in Forbidden Root, we we started out as a packaged product only brewery, and we found that our kind of complicated story was either completely going over people's heads or turning them off. Like the idea of botanic beer. Well, what is that? We started as like the original project was to make a root beer and a ginger beer, uh, but alcoholic. And this was long before not your father's root beer. And that like that product kind of derailed our efforts along the root beer line. Uh, but so then we were with this botanical thing, and we really liked the direction. We liked the beers we were making, but people didn't understand it. And that's mm-hmm. why we opened our first brew pub, because now we can have an environment. We can have the servers trained to really walk people through it. We can have 100 big jars full of all kinds of different like botanical sort of ingredients up on the shelf that kind of makes that point visually you know, and do everything. And then, and then the food supports the beer, um, the beer supports the food and you have this opportunity to get people, sit them down, spend a couple hours and, and they can go and tell, tell ever tell their friends about your thing. And then eventually, you know, build those relationships with your, your guests and eventually customers. So, you know, that's how we did it, but it was sort of a herky jerky. wasn't like that was the original plan, but we just got, you know, you get in business, you get to a point, you have a problem and you figure out the best way to solve it. And if you have to turn 90 degrees and do that for a while, then that's what you do. And uh, so that's sort of where we ended up. And we found that, you know, once we had one, we wanted to expand eastward. So we put a place, we put a a brew pub uh, outside Columbus, Ohio, and that got us a footprint in Ohio. uh, So we can fill in Indiana and maybe move into Western Pennsylvania. And then maybe, you know, I mean, we're looking at some other places. I'm not sure where we're going to go next, but we probably have a brewery every other state in the territory that we're going to be in. I think that's more or less the plan right now. But again, if things change, then we'll change. Well, so if 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 you were consulting uh, uh, with a brewery or uh, or on their branding or or facilitating you know a unique experience, and you know, we've kind of talked about some of the elements already, but what would you advise them to do on it, like step by step? What, how does someone create the unique experience? Human beings have used the power of storytelling for millennia. We use stories to educate, motivate, and inspire others to lead better lives. If you're a business in the beer industry, we can use the power of story to better serve your customers. At Mountain Sea Media, I help you tell your story and keep your brand on top of mind. Mountain Sea Media is your resource for engaging multimedia beer content. Contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com to discuss your next project. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. Well, be true to yourself. Like, really figure out, like, why are you doing this? And who are you? You know, what, you, what, what, what matters to you? Are you, you love music? 
do you are you like a foodie my, like my partner forbidden root he was just a huge foodie and not even that big a drinker and not that much a beer drinker really but he just loved flavor and so he came at it from a flavor point of view you know i have a uh, there's a brewery here in chicago called metropolitan that does lagers and they came to me um like 12 12 years ago or probably more and they wanted me to help them with branding and they came to me with a name called alchemy and that's as you know a fine mm -hmm. name but the, you know for them i said well what's this to you and it's like oh we thought it was kind of cool it's like go away yeah. come back when you have something that has some meaning to you you know that's relevant to where you are and and what they decided is that it was a couple at the time uh and her family was in the metal fabrication business and of course we're in chicago and so they came back with the idea of Metropolitan as being the sort of retro name for urban, but like it had a little bit of a retro and they love steampunk and they love like the Metro, the Paris Metro kind of that era when engineering and art sort of flowed together in a way. And so they came back with that. It's like, yes, perfect. Let's go with that. And then I said, well, look, like think about like framing, you're making lagers, right? And at that point, Pilsners weren't that hot. Uh, in the market. And it's like, redefine those beers. You know, if you just call it a Pilsner, there's a hundred other Pilsners on the shelf and no real reason for people to, to buy that. So why don't you call it something else? You know, so they came up with bright lager hmm. and it was just a little bit of having their own spin on it, putting it in a craft context rather than just kneeling down and bowing to the, the Reinheitsgebot, that, that German beer culture, which is so narrow um, because I don't think at that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that didn't have that much appeal. We're a little bit of like retrograde on that, you know, where Pilsners are now, they're kind of cool. Um, but I mean, they've always been cool, but people are starting to kind of accept them and look for them. Um, but that wasn't necessarily the case back then. And, and then I said, well, if, you know, if you want to think about names, think about maybe like, imagine that there was a little brewery across the street from the giant steel mill around the lake in Gary, Indiana, this U.S. steel plant, huge, huge plant. Imagine for 150 years, 130 years, that brewery's been there making beer. They've somehow survived. What would their beers be called? You know, so that got them, got them a toehold. So they came up with Magneto and Dynamo and, and uh, Crankshaft and a whole bunch of names that are sort of mechanical. Um, you know, they have a sort of a, a robot type of, uh, mascot that we use on the labels and things like that. So, you know, that all, and then we, the, all the labels have a bit of a sort of art deco engineering kind of turn of the century engineering kind of look about them a little bit, a lot of metallic tones and things like that. So, yeah. you know, that's just a way of like how you, how you, you know, that's why we did it then. And I think that was good thinking that was sort of like got them, got them going uh, on a on a direction that was unique in the market uh, that they could really get feel like uh, really feel like they could get behind it one of one of her uncles actually fabricated tap handles from aluminum billets using cnc machining you know so they had so they had these like metallic tap handles that were machined out of blocks of aluminum one at a time oh cool you know because it was a family member who could do it for a decent price you yeah know? Cause this would be expensive to just have made. So, you know, sometimes, you know, you want like the worst, the, 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 those calls I used to hate the most were people like, Oh, we want to appeal to cool people and we want to make something cool. 
Cause we don't really know. We're just marketing people, you know, and it's like, I, I can't deal with that. You know, yeah. I can't help you. Cause I don't know what you're, you know, just being cool. That's not a position. No, you know, and, and it's, it, it's it, empty. Well, it's one of those things too. And I'm sorry, I spent I spent years and years and decades in uh, hospitality, and in that mm-hmm. phrase, the customer is always right. Well, of course, there's some truth to that, but there's also some falsity to that as well. Where it's like you you can't please everyone, and you shouldn't even try. You that you can stand on this is what we offer, this is who we are, and let that vet out the people that you know you don't want to show up to your establishment and establish your tribe. Get those people to come to your establishment and. And yeah, and and really, and just lean into that, and uh, and uh, yeah, the, you know, I mean, this is the fundamental difference between like craft breweries and the big breweries trying to play at craft. Yeah, right. Because their methodology is like, okay, we're going to have focus groups. We're going to select a target audience. We're going to select a spot on the shelf that we want to fill. We're going to put those together. We're going to sit down and talk to people in focus groups, and then we're going to like develop concepts, give them a bunch of concepts, ask them what they think. You know, it's like the difference between IBM and Apple, right? Apple, like IBM did all that research and they just did what they thought people asked for. Apple thought about like, especially in the Steve Jobs days, he tried to look beyond what people even knew they wanted and give them that. Yes. Right. So that's, and that's a really fundamental cultural difference in the way you're business runs and in the way you develop new products it's why you know those large breweries i think for almost like without with very few exceptions have never managed to build any kind of real craft brand all on their own without buying it i mean maybe blue moon would be like the one notable exception to that but Hmm. they've they've spent a lot of money and tried to do it and it's they've just never they can't their structure does not allow that kind of like, hey, what the hell? Let's just try this. You know, and I, you know I, I, to be at any scale, they can do it. Like they can build a little brew pub by the ballpark, and they can do, let the brewer do that a little bit. But they, you know, they can't scale because they have to like open up and in a year be as big as Sierra Nevada. Yeah, that's their problem, right? Well, I think about some of the places I've gone into where there's like, yeah, they're known for their beer. They're known for their food. I'm going out with my my wife and kids. As soon as you walk in, then like there's a great big TV with the game on, whatever the game is. The game is on. So therefore, I am now going to, um, you know, me being the average, you know, sports loving person, I'm, I'm now going to ignore my spouse, my kids. I'm not going to pay attention to the beer and food. I'm just, you know, I'm there staring at the TV and and that's not... That's not an experience. I mean, if you want to go watch the game, great, go watch the game. But that's not what we're talking about. Well, we we faced that exact problem at Forbidden Root when we opened our first place. Because all of the people that we hired as managers and stuff are, you have to have a TV. (laughs) You have to have TVs in this place because people just won't come if they're not. And so we we put TVs on either side of the, we have a center bar area. And we put TVs on either side up above. But the beer menus are on little roller, like barn door trolleys and the beer menus close and cover the TV. And so the rule is local teams in playoffs and national emergencies only. I gotcha. Right. So we have, we have them, um, once in a rare while we'll put up, like open them up for a bears game on Sunday if we're slow or something, but we don't just let somebody say, Hey, can you turn the TV on. Cause you can't even see it. So nobody knows it's there unless we open those up. 
you know, so that's kind of how, and the new place, the place in Columbus, I don't think that has TVs and the one, the new one that we're getting ready to open doesn't have any TVs and it's a bigger place. So, uh, See, and, and I'm not totally against TVs. I think if you know, if you and I were to open up a a brewery that just caters to the the outdoor athlete, you know, skiing and surfing and all that sort of stuff, then it would make sense to put TVs in every corner showing Warren Miller films or surf movies or something like that, just to add to that ambiance. But but just to take people out of the environment, I, I think, is kind of derails the whole idea of the experience. Yeah, it just sort of turns diners into zombies yeah you totally know? i mean they're they're just like can't talk to anybody they're just like in the game and shouting and engaged that's why people like it it takes them away from themselves but on the other hand we want them here yeah you know we we spent a lot of money to make a nice place to tell them a story to build a relationship with them and it's like it's not a great relationship if you're just watching sports all the time well, that, so, you know what I mean? That's what national chains are for. If you want to go just watch the game, go to one of those places. But um, there are plenty of places to there watch. There are plenty of places. Yeah. So um, yeah. if you, you've done quite a bit of traveling around the world. Um, what have been some of your favorite brewery experiences? I mean, describe those for me. Uh, oh, well, you know, I mean, there's a million of them. Uh, one of the, the last trip to uh, Brazil, we actually did. Uh, um, some collaborations, some brew, some brewing collaborations. I wasn't able to go to all the breweries, certainly not to be able, not able to go before, but we had a real nice, real nice conversations. And we did have, um, there's a, a really great uh, brewery in Sao Paulo called uh, Chanuchino, and they've got amazing brewers there and they're doing some really innovative things. And one of the, one of the beer that they made was a, 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 a cocktail based on a, a very popular Brazilian drink, which is not a caipirinha, hmm. uh, that has some bitters in it and uh, some fruit. And we we worked together on it. And and I had been formulating some bitters out of some old uh, recipe books and things, distilling books, and uh, passed those along to the brewer in Brazil. And he reformulated them based on all Brazilian like jungle ingredients oh wow and so that was pretty cool it was a really great brewery um like a guy it was owned by a guy named uh gilbert uh tarantino who'd been in the beer importing business for a very long time in brazil like imported a lot of european beers and things and so he was very very well positioned to to have a successful place so they got a really cool place um there's a, a brewery in uh south in in uh Oh, in uh, South Africa, in the in the oh God, what's the name of the town? I'm blanking out here. In the uh, southwest of Brazil, on the Cape, Cape, um, um, the Cape, and uh, this guy was a German national, and was brewing some of the most amazing beers I ever had in my life. Uh, had a um, IPA that was brewed with 100 percent mandarina bavaria and and uh it was called cape brewing company and and the the guy was a a really brilliant brewer and also very much a mentor to a lot of other uh, brewers in the area who are sort of coming up because he realized that if i help these other guys then i'm helping the business as a whole i'm helping craft brewing and he was also uh, doing some contract brewing for him as well and they had a really really nice uh um, you know, one of those really nice German uh, brew systems with all the bells and whistles. That it was super clean beer, really amazing. Uh, oh, 
you know, I don't know. There's a there's a there's a lot of great breweries. So. Well, there's a million of them, and I think, and you know, when kind of thinking about this topic, I was thinking about what what have been some of the most memorable experiences I've had, and and you know, they're all you know, they're all different. And I think that's the whole point is, is it's different. It's like, what do you stand for? Like you said, it's like, what's important to you? What it, it's almost like, um, we're trying to communicate something. Um, but instead of using words, we're trying to communicate through, um, through the, uh, all of your senses, most of all, you know, flavor and, and, uh, and it's kind of an interesting, interesting approach to, um, you know, I think, a. a, a uh, a brewery in uh, Central Oregon, where I used to live, um, they do cask-only British-style beers, and they've designed their their brewery and their tap room in in downtown Bend, where you walk in. I mean, the the lights are dim. There's leather chairs. There's a brick wall, and it it is the cheapest trip to England I've ever made. And it was and it yeah. was it was equally as authentic as as much as you can anyway. Um, and it was it was fantastic. Yeah, there's one of those in Nina, Wisconsin. There's another, a really good one called Hogshead in Denver. I, I assume they're still going. Um, it, those are lovely, but they're, you know, that's a tough sell. People are like not, just not that aware of them, uh, of that style of beer. And, and that's a real passion project. Oh. They're very cool. I really love them when I can find them. Well, and, uh, and, I, and I try to bring it up when I can, but just because they are such special, fantastic beers that I, it's like, you know, you need to experience those. So, yeah. I, well, I like the little ones too. You know, I like ones that are basically kind of like uh, commercial home breweries. Yeah. There was one in, in Uray, Colorado called the Mr. Grumpy Pants Presents the Uray Brewing Company. <laughs> and this was a guy that was a, had been a chef at like ski areas and stuff. And he got sick of that business and he took his savings and he moved into a space in the county maintenance garage and got some giant pots and some burners and stuff. And <laughs> just a tiny little place. He probably had seats for like 15 people in there or something. But we had a lovely Hefeweizen in there in an after, on the in the afternoon on a beautiful day. It was just like, oh man, I love craft beer, you know, because it can be just sometimes so simple. Yeah. Well, the, and and just for the just for the shout out sake, this uh, this brewery and it's in uh, Redmond, Oregon. Um, it's uh, mm-hmm. Porter Brewing, and the tap room is the cellar in, in downtown Bend. So, if anyone's listening yeah. to this and you're in Central Oregon, uh, go uh, go have a, a cask beer and tell them that Jeremy and Randy sent you. And it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, along these lines, so you, uh, you have a background. Anyone who's uh, looked at your books or kind of looked at your website, anyone who knows anything about you knows that you're uh, you're an artist, you're a graphic designer, you're all that stuff. What is yep. what is the value, the purpose of art design um, in in ultimately creating this experience? Whether it's creating an experience with a book or creating experience at a brewery or whatever it may be. Well, we're we're very visual creatures. You know, so um, we can we can reach parts of our brain through through visual communication that are kind of hard to get to sometimes through language. You know, and uh, I'm working on this big book on on the chemical senses right now on taste and mouthfeel and smell and flavor and all that kind of thing. Um, and and I'm finding even to understand some of these things myself, I'm having to having to do diagrams. You know, and if I can get all the pieces I need to do the diagram, then at that point, I kind of understand what's going on. Mm. Um, but but so, I mean, and you know, I, I came up, my my first design job, we were a block away from Procter & Gamble. 
from their main headquarters, the mothership. And so I was doing price off patches for Charmin and, you know, all that kind of horrible stuff. Hmm. And, 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 you know, and really in the old days, it was sort of like, put that brand right up front, make sure it's real legible, you know, put the, whatever the slogan is to help understand it, color code the, the flavors to match like what everybody else is doing. Uh, you know, hops are green, uh, whatever, whatever it is. And, you know, there you go. That's, that's the way marketing worked. And they had scientific studies and eye movement studies. They still use all that kind of stuff. But, you know, really in the last 10 years or so, there's been an evolution. It started a little before that, but I, I credit really largely Nick Floyd at Three Floyds Brewing for being the one guy that really launched that kind of revolution where he just, like I did uh, design work for them uh, for 10 years or so when they were getting started. And he would go to a, he just loved uh, fantasy art and comic books and tattoo art and all that kind of heavy metal rock and roll. He was very personal for him. And he would like go to a bar, he'd meet an artist, they'd get drunk. Two weeks later, I'd get a painting in the mail. <laughs> and then Nick, and then I'd have to find out a way to make it into a Three Floyds label. And, and so he just really pushed the boundaries in every way for what was considered a, la- you know, what was considered a beer label. Because, you know, I've, one of the reasons I was drawn to beer is because it has a sort of a retro, there's always been sort of a retro character that a, has a backward-looking thing about it. Like, you know, this tradition, all this heritage and stuff, it has had, has meaning, or had anyway. Um, and, and so I, I get to play in styles like that, which, which there's a lot of categories you can't really do that in. And so that, for me, was really appealing. But Nick is like, yeah, we're just doing this fantasy stuff, you know, and um, and, and so eventually, you, with especially with the rise of um, canning and of the hazy IPA sort of um, style, maybe five years ago, seven years ago, a little longer, maybe people really started being more artful because like. Like I said earlier, the early crappier labels were a lot of them were just god awful horrible. <laughs> they were very formulaic. Like I said, pick a creek and a critter, throw some hops on there. You know, you get like the Sierra Nevada brand image, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was fine in that day. You know, it, and it, they they've managed to keep it keep it alive. And but but nowadays you'd never start that. You know, we have two breweries here in Chicago that have on staff illustrators. Not graphic designers, but illustrators that are just illustrating all the time. They're doing designs for trucks and they're doing, you know, designs for new beers and whatever. And they're just like illustrating their hearts out, you know, and that would have been like just I, I would have never been able to even conceive of that. And and for me, my job has always been not to express myself, but to express well the brewery point of view to do the best job at that. But nowadays it's really like, no, you should just have art. You know, like, and, and the more random, the more disconnected, the more like, whatever, whatever, it, the better people seem to like it. So it's a really different, a really different point of view. And and I'm not a visual artist, but I, I but being somewhat creative and artistic that I, I kind of pay attention to these things. And I think about, you know, what what is the stuff trying to communicate? I mean, I think there, you know, obviously there's different ways to communicate um, you know, by words or music or color or art or even flavor. Um, and and I, I, I often reference um, Maui Brewing, what Garrett over in uh, Maui is doing. 
with uh, their can design they did some years ago. And to me, that that was just perfect. I mean, it was it was clean. It it was um, it was just kind of like very professionally done, but it still it still kind of embodies that uh, Aloha spirit. I mean, it's done in kind of like a tattoo art. So it's it's both mm-hmm. literally and figuratively kind of, you know, kind of tribal, meaning that it's like we're trying to establish our tribe. We are you know, we are the ones who care about the 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 aina and the, you know, the the people and everything else um, and yeah. establishing that that mentality. And then you see yeah, these. I mean, yeah, sorry, sorry and then you see these incredible works of art, like Angry Orchard is one that pops up to my mind at the moment, um, where it's like, wow, that that artist is clearly talented, but what they're trying to communicate is this. Um, I don't know, was it Raging Apple or something like that? It was just kind of like this this youthful kind of stuff that just really doesn't speak to me at all. But you know, that that's just me. It's yeah. kind of interesting yeah. how that works. I think that's fair. I mean, I th- you know, I, I think part of it is like. As long as the decisions are being made by people who are like not a hundred levels up from the uh, you know from the people who are actually doing the work, it, you know it, it you lose something. You got a lot of different levels, and like and then you have to justify every decision, and to, to justify you have to have data, and to get data, you know, I mean that's really fraught trying to get any kind of data in a, in a market and like what people want. And, you know, uh, and because there's so much money at stake, you can't, you can't just dump millions of dollars into something, um, on the, on a whim, but that's, what's beautiful about craft beer. Every beer is a test market, you know, in a brew pub and you can see what people like and you know, every week, okay, what's our top 10 sellers this week? And so you just have that sense all the time, you know, you get that immediate feedback, you see people, you see how they react, you see what they say about the beer. Um, whereas in a larger company, it's just the sociological structure that um, makes that really almost impossible to do. Well, l- l- let's kind of pivot just just slightly because I, I I don't want to run out of time um, and and skip over this topic because you you also are an educator and a teacher speaker. Um, what what does the role of better beer education play into this this idea of creating a better experience? I mean, we we've all been to breweries where the staff you know, either doesn't know a thing about beer or the staff knows the script they were told to say about the beer. But at what point does education really bring something, uh, rise something to the surface? Well, I think it's well. I, th- I think one thing it says is that we take this seriously because you got people coming in there that know a lot about beer. I mean, the the the, the people that you um, that that you target. In, in the in, that are just enthusiasts and homebrewers and people like that, um, there's a lot of those that are very knowledgeable, and especially the homebrewers, and knowledgeable about styles, knowledgeable about chemistry and flavor and ingredients and all of that stuff. And when you don't, when you when your staff doesn't seem to have that much knowledge of that kind of thing, people are like, well, what's the deal with this place? You know, these guys just don't seem to really. They're just not that into it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to demonstrate that. And it's a form of power, really, in a way. Like, we're going to meet you and, and go, and not only do we know as much as you about some things, we may know more. And we're going we're gonna, to, you, you come in here, you're going to learn some things. You're going to have some experience, maybe some, think about things maybe in a way you hadn't before. You know, and that's part of that, that message. So 
Um, you know, so much of the, like the whole, the, like what, like a third of the tasting beer book and, and a, a big part of that Cicerone program it revolves around beer styles. And I don't know, like we're sort of in a post style era here now, you know, there's certainly huge swaths of beer styles like pale ale, the people used that used to be the foundation that people just don't care that much about. Yeah, they buy them, they drink them, but it's like it's not like the hazies uh, that people are really excited about, you know. And that's even becoming like as those become more ubiquitous, there's less of a of a um, secret thrill about them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, um, so it's it's interesting because uh, I'm good friends with Ray Daniels at Cicerone. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's like with COVID and with this like change in focus on what people are interested in, it's sort of a different. A little bit of a different. Uh, they're sort of navigating a little bit different world right now. But at at some point, and, and I, my theory is, you know, we're already starting to get back out there, and and hopefully that uh, nothing derails of that in the future. But as we continue, there is so much competition that you know we have to do different things to uh, outdo our competition. And in my opinion, and I'm very biased. Um, is one thing that a lot of breweries are not doing is making sure that their staff is very well educated to create that uh, environment, yeah. that experience. Um, uh, it's hard because it's hard because there's a lot of turnover. Yeah. Uh, because these are not really highly paid people. Because there's not like a time of the day or the time of the week where people are just hanging around and you can get everybody together. We just have a hard time even scheduling training. Sure. We do it some. Um, you know, there's some places that will incentivize people to get those Cicerone programs, yep. and that seems to be pretty effective for them. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's challenging because it's it, you know you can't you can't just read a book and know this stuff. A lot of what you know, being a a good a beer expert, uh, really involves knowing those flavors and and knowing what they are and when to like you know if you get a beer that's not quite right, knowing what that means, what that what those signs are. Uh, you know, it just takes a little bit of time. Hopefully you can hire people that are already excited about craft beer, but when you're looking for servers in a, in a market where they're, you know, labor is tight, uh, you, you don't always have the luxury of, uh, choosing that at least you get managers hopefully that are really excited about them. sure and and things are challenging now and and of course you know one could always read your book and and have a solid foundation um but you know you know with my my time spent in in restaurants there are things that we can do even though there is turnover even though there is there is just kind of like you know i i'm just i'm just here to make money while i go to school or something like that sure yeah but, no, but i agree but, um, you know, some of that could be, you know, like a pre-shift meeting of like, okay, today, here's the beer of today. We're going to talk about this as a style. We're going to talk about this as a flavor profile, what it pairs with, how to sell it, how to upsell it, um, yep. um, and how to, how to create, if you have a small brewery, how to incorporate your servers and bartenders into a tasting panel just, just to educate and get some extra um, pallets on that beer before it goes out. There, there's, I think there's a lot of different simple things we can do, but... Um, sure. But on that vein, what else? What else could? Uh, granted, there are challenges, and I'm not going to dismiss that at all. But what are some things that you have done with your breweries, or that people could do with their on-premise places? Uh, I don't know. Uh, well, you can, uh, you know, have decent beer descriptions that that are accurate and timely, and and like in and have menus that menus that don't just say. 
what the name of the beer is with no no um indication of what general style or or anything that's sort of a pet peeve of mine mm-hmm. when you, you go to a, you get a beer menu and it's like um you know it's bricks keller ale and dog barf ale and these whatever it is and and there's not really any indication maybe alcohol is this light is it dark is it hoppy is it an ipa like how am i even supposed to make a decision and then sometimes when you ask people they you know they seem put out to have to explain it to you but you know we don't live at that i'm new here i don't know what you guys do so um that that is a little i mean like just the basics uh, would be really helpful because sometimes people just don't, they don't, you know, it's very hard to see things from other people's perspectives. And that's key to creating those experiences is trying to understand it, not the way you see it, but how somebody just walking through the door would see it. Yeah. It, that's funny. That's also a pet peeve of mine in particular. Um, uh, you know, I was thinking about like wine lists, for example, you know, going to a place oh, and I don't, I don't know wine like I know beer. And so, you know, maybe I'm looking at, okay, tell, you know, I don't, what's this Mervedra? I don't what, what's a Mervedra? And you ask the server, oh, I don't know. Let me go ask the manager. And the manager doesn't really know. They, they give you the script. Um, yeah. And that's just oh, not yeah. helpful. And same thing with beers. Well, I, I think wine, I, I have a, a crackpot theory that wine really likes you to feel ignorant (laughs) (laughs) you know that there's so much about the wine world that's really based on nothing and um they want you to feel stupid so you'll just order you'll spend a little more than maybe you were gonna uh because um you don't want to look like an idiot yes that you are yes yeah, they, they, they put the, the cheap one in there just as, you know, for profiling purposes. Then the middle one is to steer most people to that. And then the expensive one is for, all right, who wants to show off today? And uh, they've done it time and t- they've done things time and time again where they do $10 wines and $100 wines. Mm-hmm. And everybody likes the $100 wines as everybody likes the $10 wines at least as well as the $100 wines. Yeah. And the only people who like the $100 wines as well as the, $10 wines are professionals. Yeah. Wine professionals. Yeah. Even wine enthusiasts like the $10 wines better. Yeah. You know, and that's been like a lot of double blind tasting and stuff like that that's to, funny. to demonstrate that. So, you know. <laughs> but but back to our menu thing. I mean, if we were to just put it, you know, if if you and I went to go have lunch at a brewery and they said uh, Dunkel, okay, you and I know what a Dunkel is, but but right. let's let's say most people don't. Um, if there's just a simple description of, uh, you know, malt malt forward, uh, chocolatey, uh, you know, German lager, it's like okay, Dark now yep. now we mm-hmm. have a sense of of what we're getting ourselves into, and if we're looking at um, the uh, the, the Reuben sandwich uh, pairs great with this cream stout. You know, it's like, okay, you know, I, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of value in empowering the customer, especially if you don't have the ability or wherewithal to adequately uh, basically train your staff. And, and I yeah, don't see that enough. Yeah, we don't we don't put pairings on our menus because we want to have that interaction be with the servers. So we do we do a number of things where we are trying to encourage that interaction. Like we have kids items, but we don't have a kids menu because okay. if somebody comes in and says we there's kids at the table, it's like oh let me tell you what we got for kids. So now we've got a server who's in a position to be helpful and walk them through it. 
and, and it feels a little custom. And that's you know? a great technique, but but that also kind of speaks to where you guys are setting up your servers with success, with some education. You're empowering yeah. them to be table leaders, not just order yeah. takers, right? Yeah, you have to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, I. Um, gosh, the, the, so uh, so, what is the current state of education in the in in the beer world today do you think i mean i i see it getting better but wh where do you see it well it's getting more diffuse i mean we were doing um you know was was doing a lot of beer styles classes for distributors and and people at, and even brewers at the siebel institute uh ray daniels and i started doing a class more or less for for brewers on style and then we got requests from distributors to cut out a lot of the brewing stuff and the, like the recipe related stuff out of the styles and just do the styles and mm. then also include like glassware and beer and food and things like that. Uh, but you know, you, there's more of that information being taught elsewhere. Um, there's more like a lot of the, most cities now have like a beer person that's doing, doing that kind of stuff. So we're seeing drop in demand for that kind of stuff. Now with, with COVID also on top of that, it's hard to say, you know, how much of that will come back sure um but um you know so uh, uh I, I don't know it's like I, I i don't have a global picture of that but i'll tell you what they are really excited about all that stuff in mexico and brazil and all over because i've been doing uh, i've been doing zoom classes for like 100 people <coughs> simultaneously translated into portuguese and spanish for people in colombia and brazil and all over so there there's probably right now more excitement, more demand in those developing markets than in this market that's sort of mature. Well, it sounds like we need to travel down there. I mean, vamonos, let's go, right? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> right. Yeah. Claro que si. Um, yeah. So let's shift gears. I'm going to start uh, closing this off and I, I want to make sure I'm not taking too much of your time because you have, you have a, um, actually last question before we do that, you have a book that you're starting to work on on taste that you mentioned. Um, tell, tell us more about that. When, and most importantly, when is that going to come out? Well, um, I'm still working on it. I'm two years in, um, which I thought was a lot. And then I read, then I heard that uh, Harold McGee spent nine years working on his, um, nosedive book on on aroma like an encyclopedia of aroma more or less so mm -hmm. i felt pretty pretty good and i'm like a little more than halfway through it hopefully like about two-thirds of the way through it so i'm basically using tasting coming in as an outsider you know i'm not a scientist but i'm really interested in science but i think as an outsider i can look at the science and cover all of it whereas people who are in science they tend to be a little bit, bit siloed and they either do taste or they do, um, you know, cognitive stuff relative to flavor or they do receptor um, biophysics or whatever it is. And so the disadvantage for me is I got to learn all this stuff, but I'm just using tasting as a way, like every question I've ever had about tasting to try and help understand, you know, what's going on. And, and we are amazing creatures. I mean, we are so capable People always sort of poo-poo human beings in the in the um, like smell department, especially because dogs and bears, you know, are obviously really super highly sensitive. We have whole classes of chemicals that we can smell really intensely that they can't at all. Like there was a a, a science experiment where they were working with like um, these chemicals called pyrazines and other things that are 
uh, Maillard cook flavors, like uh, caramelized, roasted type of flavors. They're very pungent. And they were using them with rats, and the rats couldn't really even smell them. But the researchers are like, oh, my God, this stuff is so stinky. And they started looking at it, and it's like, oh, we have receptors for all that stuff because we've been cooking for half a million years. And, and we, right? love, so co- even and in we last, love coffee. Of course we can smell pyrazines. And, yeah. Right? And so even in the, you know, the last few hundred thousand years, we've developed a whole repertoire of genetic, um, you know, genetics to be able to smell all these chemicals that are really key in food compounds. And, and they can't like those animals can't smell that at all. And, and we can, we can scent track. There's a, a famous experiment where they got people down on their hands and knees on a grassy field and they dragged a chocolate scented rag across the field. And people are like going swinging their head back and forth. No, it's over here. It's over here. They can follow that track. And the more they do it, the better they get. Wow. And they, and they, they take, like and sniffing, you would think a sniff is just like breathing air in, but a sniffing is actually a neurological trigger that starts the synchronization of brain rhythms between different parts of your of your lower brain, uh, the, like your uh, olfactory cortex and the olfactory bulb. They get synchronized based on sniff, hmm. and that sniffing that in in small animals that sniffing because they can sniff really rapidly, and that is actually this. The gamma, I think it's the gamma rhythm that they can that they sniff in. That's that 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 exact rhythm of smells is the rhythm that the brain uses. We're bigger, so we have to like we we use multiples of that. But um, so um, you know, in the end, I think it's really helpful to to know all this stuff because it affects the way you understand how to approach things. The importance of say retronasal tasting, where where you you get the you get the retronasal smell, uh, so rather than just sniffing through your nose, you're actually smelling it from inside your mouth. It's going up the back of your back of your nasal passage and accessing the receptors that way, and it triggers an entirely different set of brain regions to interpret that. It's much more about food, much more about preference, and do I like this? And you know, how does this like? Uh, and also there are there's chemistry going on in your mouth that will liberate bound up flavor molecules, say in wine, for example, and beer too, that are aromatic, aromatic like parts of molecules that are stuck onto big, heavy sugar molecules. And when they get in your mouth, the, the enzymes present in your saliva and in your microbial population liberate those bonds. So you can smell things inside your mouth through that retronasal that you cannot smell in the glass no matter how good a taster you are or how long you smell smell wow you know and so so there's just so many insights in that so i'm hoping it's going to be it's the book i always wanted to read and i you know i have never found one like this uh there's just amazing even if you're just not that into flavor but you're interested in how the brain works and how our senses work uh that's one of the audiences but obviously people who are excuse me, people who are interested in, in beer or wine or sake or food or anything uh, should have, um, you know, should find a lot in here to be useful. So it's going to be a complicated process. We're looking, I think, at probably in 2023 before we finally get this thing um, in print. Well, and knowing your work, you're going to present it in such a way that caters to visual learners like me. Yes, so as I, much as possible. As much uh, as possible, which is, which but, is fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, okay, so let's uh, kind of 
close things off for a little bit um, or in a little bit. Um, so uh, if I could turn you into the king of the beer world for a day, Randy, what would you change? What's, what's the first thing you would change? I would have it so people like to drink dark beer besides just stouts. <laughs> such, such as? <laughs> oh, I don't know. You, you name it. Brown like ale. Dunkles. Uh, that dunkle you met. Baltics. You know, because we, like, yeah, Baltics are great. Um, but like dunkles, like I have a hard time when I'm doing classes and I'm trying to present German dunkel. I can't. I I don't have any choices because craft brewers aren't really making that style. The beers that come over from Germany, when you can find them, uh, they got dust on them. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of those are more obscure styles. Right now, English like English beers are really hard to do mm-hmm. because, like, there's just no market for them. They were kind of. I think they priced themselves out, and the and the quality with a slow moving beer in the market, they put a, you always put like a year shelf life on things, mm-hmm. but that's a, like even six months for a lot of those styles is kind of a joke. And, um, you know, so, uh, I would like, I love IPAs. I really love, uh, hazies. You know, we, we started doing those pretty early and we got on board and everybody, like, there's a lot of things that I really like about them. So I don't have a beef with any of those hot styles. I just think, um, I just wish people, we're a little more open to variety sometimes. Uh, I totally agreed there. Um, next question. Uh, soon you are going to uh, get onto a rocket and head to Mars because you are going to be part of a pioneering team that establishes the beer culture on, on the planet Mars. But before you leave, you get to choose your last meal and your last beer. What are they going to be? <laughs> oh, man. You know, I, I don't know about the meal. Um but- might be some kind of duck thing. I don't know. I love duck, but I never answer that question because, for me, what may, what is the what is the beer I most want? Is really depends on where I am, who I'm with, how I feel, what time of day, what time of year. Like, what's what's the beer for this moment? That there's no like great. I mean, there's certainly great beers. You know, like uh, Orval comes to mind. You mm-hmm. know, and some of those Trappist beers. I love Belgian beers. I mean, I think. They're underappreciated these days. Um, I love wit beer. That's a style that I really uh, uh, enjoy brewing and find that not too many people really brew very well. It's a difficult style to wrap your head around, really. Um, people tend to overdo it in this country. Um, but, you know, so I I never, I just never answer that question because I, I, I have too many. I like new things and I want to try it all and I don't want to always be going back to the same. It's like music. I like new music. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like jazz, but I'm not like the dead guy, jazz guy that only likes Coltrane and Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. You know, I like people who are alive. That stuff's great, but like, can we move forward, please? Yeah. You know, so that you got to have a little zero seven or two. Like, show me, show me something I haven't had before, you know, thrill me, delight me, excite me. You know, that's the beer. So I'll take that, whatever that is. Okay. So I will mark your answer to that question down as yes. Um, with, uh, with all of your experiences around the world with beer teaching and designing and, and just tasting everything else. Um, when you, when you culminate all of that wealth of experience to you, why does good beer matter? Cause it's art, it's culture, it's delicious. It, it makes us happy. You know, it thrills us. It turns out there's a chemical in barley called a uh, hordenine. That is basically more powerful than dopamine, 
and wow. on dopamine receptors. Yeah. Well, think about that. Like, I don't, I don't know how much of it's in beer, but if there's, in, and whether it goes through the digestive system, I haven't like done all the research on it, but it's in there. And it could explain part of the appeal of beer, you know, because it's like dopamine is that reward thing. That yeah. aha thing. Like, ooh, ah, oh, I'm feeling yeah, good. The, the joy drug. The joy drug, yeah. The, the receptor, transmitter, neurotransmitter. So, yeah. you know, uh, but at any rate, uh, you know, it, it, it it's, it's delicious on its own. It doesn't need explaining. Um, it, it matters because... What we put in our bodies matter. What what we eat matters. You know, those these are things that give us joy, and uh, get us excited. And I don't think you really have to say much more than that. That's great. Uh, if anyone listening that wants to you know connect with the work you're doing or keep track of what you're working on next, uh, where can they go to connect and follow you? Uh, they, I'm not really on too much on social media right now. I'm getting ready to as I get closer to having this book ready, I'm going to redo my site and be more active on, uh, Instagram and things like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, they can always reach me at my email at get, they can always go to andymosier.com. They can get my email, um, from there if they want to send me a message. And, uh, you know, I love to hear from people, especially people overseas, but wherever. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm easy to find. Great. And do you have any calls to action or any final words of wisdom for anyone listening? Uh, no, not really. Just get out there and, and, and try something you haven't had before. Awesome. Randy, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure picking your brain and learning about the, the wealth of knowledge you have to share with all of us. I can't wait for that next book to come out. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you being here on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. I always love a platform and to have a conversation about beer. As craft breweries continue to open, the competition for consumer dollars becomes even more of a challenge. Merely having good beer, good food, and good service is quickly becoming a low standard. The question is, what are you doing to vie for their attention, and how are you creating a unique experience? In the next episode, we visit with the man who created a safe place for industry pros to hang out and learn from each other. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.